The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. At some point, you got to be out of the truck, and you can't wait 20 years for that. 20 years, 20 years for that. Welcome to Service Business Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Tersh Blissett. This podcast is a part of the Blue Collar Roots Network of podcasts. Brian Orr is the guy behind the glass with smoke coming out of his ears as he's spinning all those knobs in an attempt to make us sound good. Service Business Mastery focuses on helping and guiding service-based business owners, managers, and service technicians who are considering becoming new business owners. The goal of this podcast is to help guide you away from making the same mistakes that have been made by others when they were starting their businesses. On today's episode, we will hear from Ted Gravlin. If you've ever visited HVAC Pro Talk's Facebook page, then I'm sure you've seen some of Ted's short video clips. On those clips, he gives you a little bit of tips and knowledge on how to better your business if you're a business owner or manager following that page. I wanted to bring Ted on to the podcast to pick his brain a little bit about a few tips and tricks that would help us as business owners to help figure out a way to streamline our programs. After this interview, Ted and I continued to talk for what seemed like hours because there was so much information to talk about. We couldn't cram it all into one podcast. I'm sure that we'll have Ted back on again to speak about a few different topics that you'll hear about in the podcast. A little bit about Ted. He's the author of a book named Shift, The Seven Steps to a Business That Serves You. This book focuses on how to set up a business and not just dealing with an HVAC company. Anyways, I could just blab on and on about Ted and the abundance of knowledge that he has and what he could provide with us, but it would be better if it just came from him. So let's just get started. Without any further delay, let's get into the nitty gritty with Ted. Ted, if you will, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you're in the industry, you're a best-selling author for a book that's not particularly in HVAC industry, and this podcast isn't just for HVAC owners and managers and technicians. It's really based on anybody in the service industry. So if you will, just give us a little lowdown on yourself and your history. Sure. I'm uh, 53, so I've been around a little bit, 30 years or so in the industry. I actually started out right after high school, kind of like the day after high school. I got a job. I lived in Detroit at the time at uh, Dearborn, Michigan. I worked at uh, Greenfield Village, which is kind of a world-famous history museum and the job I was assigned was to work on the steam locomotive, the steam train and stuff and effectively I was shoveling two tons of coal a day into a boiler by hand. I started at the bottom, a 150 year old system. So I kind of learned things from the real, people say old school. We're talking real old school. So yeah, that's no joke. Yeah. Like we didn't even have safety devices that you would recognize as modern safety devices today. So interesting how that worked. And then of course, when you're 18, you're like, I don't know what I'm going to take in college or what I'm going to do. And <laughs> I found that to be really interesting. And some of the men I was working with, they were in their eighties and they had started working on trains and stuff during like World War One. I. I was learning from some guys who knew engineering all the way back to when it was actually being built, right? Of course, I went to school and then I worked for a couple of companies after that for a few years. And then when I was 24, like many of us, I was a technician that started a business and had the naive things of, I thought I knew how it all worked. And a few years later, I hadn't 
really grown it very well. So I found some great mentors and eventually grew my business. When I was 28, I moved to Colorado. So I live in Denver, Colorado. And you've been there ever since? I've been there ever since. Yeah. I just wanted to live here instead of Michigan. So it was fine. Grew my business up to a point where basically my point of the whole book I wrote and everything too was how do you use a business to give you the life you really want? Because we all start a business, if we really think about it, to get freedom from something. We want to run our own thing or whatever it is. But in the end, we end up like there's a joke. An entrepreneur is somebody who works 90 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours for somebody else. Exactly. (laughs) So effectively, what I figured out how to do is I had several other careers in the meantime. So over the last 25 years that I had my business, I was also had a career as a volunteer search and rescue pilot flying around looking for lost people. And that's a weird thing because you kind of have to be able to leave whatever you're doing at the drop of a hat and like head right now in the next 30 minutes to the airport and get airborne and you might be gone three days. And that's airplane or helicopter? I flew airplanes. I mean, I would ride in helicopters. I wouldn't fly them. Sometimes I'd be in the backseat of an army helicopter if they were involved in the search. But that was kind of an interesting little career I had in the mid to late 90s for a while. I'm also a professional musician. I've played all over the country playing guitar, doing stuff. I played like all the really cool places like Red Rocks here in Denver and House of Blues all over the country and really cool venues. Yeah, I've seen that on uh, Facebook. You do Tom Petty cover? I do now. Yeah, I was in a U2 tribute that was world renowned for like nine years. And you don't plan that out either where you're saying to your office manager, hey, I'll be back in like four days. I'm going to Dallas. <laughs> you build the business so that it can run where it doesn't need you every five minutes. I got really stuck in how do you build that so I can actually do what I want to do before I'm 70. When you're in your 30s or 40s, you're like, man, I want to go do this cool stuff. So let's do it. And the good news is if you work for someone else, you'd constantly be asking for time off or whatever. But if you build your own business, you have to ask yourself for time off. And you have to make sure that your employees and your customers and everybody are taken care of. So that's been my passion for a long time is how do you use your business as a resource to have the life you want? And I don't always think it's about having the largest business, but it's about having a stable business. So the policies and procedures are in place so that if something happens, someone else knows what to do. So you don't have to be called every time something minute happens throughout the day. I use an example like, do you really think that Richard Branson, every time Virgin Airlines loses a piece of baggage, they call him? He's got it set up where it's like, no, you call this other person and they take care of it. Because if you're Richard Branson, you're off wandering around the world, like setting a hot air ballooning record or whatever the heck he's doing this month. I don't want to hear that crap. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like that it's the owners who really, I wouldn't call them a control freak, but they just micromanage things because... It could be a fear that nobody else can do it the same way they do it or a fear or it may be they want to have control over the entire situation. Is that the guys who are going to do that and have a really hard time with relinquishing that role? Or is it just because a lack of knowing that there is another option? I think it's both. Depends on personality. Most of the clients I work with when I'm doing consulting now, because I sold my business a couple of years ago to an employee. Oh, okay. And so now I just do consulting. And that just kind of came about as an accident, actually. We were joking around one day, and he said he wanted to buy a company, and I was kidding. And I said, you can buy this one. (laughs) And uh, a couple days later, he asked me, were you serious about that? And I said, well, yeah, actually, I think I was now that I think about it. So we worked it out. And when I'm working with consulting clients today, what I find is that it depends on personality, right? It depends on some guys just don't know any better. And that's mostly what I end up finding out is they have a 
view of how the world works. They think that business should go this way. And when it doesn't, they're like upset. Like, well, it's supposed to work this way. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast initially was the fact that there's a lot of guys out there, a lot of my friends who just, whenever I mention something and they're like, I had no idea that that could even be done that way. Yeah, man, just do a little research. You're like, I don't have time to do research. Well, it's almost like we see these debates every day about stuff that it's a finished conversation as far as I'm concerned between things like flat rate and time and material for residential. Conversation has been over for 20 years. Why are we still debating this? If you still want to work on a business model from 1973, go ahead, but you're not going to grow a business. That kind of leads us into our first little thing is the reason why so many businesses fail to grow. What's your input on that? I think it's they don't know the plan of what growth really looks like. They're kind of like, how many times do you see this? Well, I just need to get my name out there. Or I'm just going to do good work and the word of mouth will take care of itself. If you build it, they will come. And they will. It's just that it takes 25 years. It's like, I don't want to wait 25 years to have my business get to a point where it doesn't need me in the truck every day. (laughs) But some guys, I mean, they don't mind being in the truck every day. I totally get that. That's just not my cup of tea. Well, I would argue that it's not really a business then because if you're not there, it doesn't do anything. It relies on one person. It's a job for yourself and you're self-employed, but you're not really like an MBA would not consider you a business owner. You don't own a business. A business can run as an own entity without any one person being there. And it's okay. Again, I'm not upset, but if that's what you want to do. But if you're trying to actually get freedom from the whole thing, you've got to get yourself where you're not that key every single day, which means at some point you got to be out of the truck and you can't wait 20 years for that. That makes total sense. You know, the shorter answer to your question is if they're using a business model where they just don't even know what to do to build it, that's the most common thing. And then the second thing is the mindset, the belief system that they have around how the whole thing works anyway. The analogy I use a lot is if we took the playbook from the New England Patriots that just won the Super Bowl, right? And we gave it to like the Cleveland Browns or somebody like the worst team in the league, the Detroit Lions or whoever. They have the playbook now that it takes to win. They know what it is. But are they going to instantly be winners because of that? Because they also have to have that belief in the locker room, in our case, in the business, that says, no, damn it, we're winners and we execute this. And just because we played two downs of the first quarter and it didn't work out, we don't say, oh, well, this doesn't work. We go, no, we stick with that plan we know works and we keep executing, executing, and eventually we get what we want. And you have to put all the people in place that believe the same thing. So you have that same mentality and the technicians or the employees that are that's their drive and their motive. So you have to scout those guys out. So you can't just do it with anybody. Yeah. I spend about half my time when I'm working with consulting people. Here's the plan you should be doing and here are the nuts and bolts. But I spend about the other half doing, this is what you need to believe as an owner. And if you don't believe it, none of it's going to work. No matter who you get the game plan from, it's not going to work because you believe, for example, that everyone wants a cheap price. If you believe that, you'll never grow your company. If you believe that you can't find good employees, you'll never grow your company. We end up going with a lot of mindset changes. It's really tough too, because no matter what you tell your employees, if you don't believe it, they can see right through it. Oh, sure. Yeah. It all starts at the top. 
So you get a big difference between your technical skills and your business skills. Speaking to a technician who's thinking about going into the industry, and basically I would say it's almost a completely different industry, being a business owner versus being a service technician, especially if you're the guy that's not going to stay in the van forever. And some guys will stay in the van even though they have office personnel and six other service techs. They just really like staying in the van. I did to a certain extent. Certain things I like doing, but... If I took off for four days, it didn't mean we stopped working either. And a guy like that, would he hire, say, a COO that maybe run the day-to-day operations or the business side of things? I don't think so. So many people, this is a big mistake everyone tries to make, especially like in the marketing side. Oh, I don't know how to do it. I don't like to do it. I'll just hire some service or somebody and I'll just wash my hands of it and then the leads will come in because I won't have to worry about it. You cannot delegate that responsibility now, you can delegate the nuts and bolts of day-to-day doing it. You can hire somebody to run your ads or something for you. But at the end of the day, they can't design your strategic thinking for you, like what's your company really offering and how you differentiate yourself in the market and all those strategic things that the owner really has to be doing. You have got to learn those business skills if you're going to run a business. There's no way to delegate that. If you have your CMO, your marketing, your coordinator or whatever, and they have no authority throughout the business, they can tell potentially new customers or clients all kinds of things. But if they don't have the authority to enforce all those things and they're not the business owner or a business partner, then it's really tough for them to be the best marketer that they could possibly be. For example, the reason why most marketing doesn't work is because the offer sucks. Here's everybody's default offer. I'm going to get my name out there which tells me that you have no offer because your offer implies at this point, I'm going to just give you my name and hope someday that you call me when you need me. (laughs) It's the quote unquote branding. You're sucked into the branding aspect. But it's a very weak brand because every other company in your competition is doing exactly the same branding. I hope you like me better than the other guy and remember my name someday. (laughs) It's like, that's a really weak offer. A great analogy that's used often in business circles. By the way, I spend about, gosh, half my week studying businesses way outside the service businesses to see what they're doing and how they're succeeding. Because how do we apply that? Because basically, I got to tell you, the HVAC world especially is in the stone ages when it comes to things like internet marketing and stuff. We're 30 years behind everybody else. Yeah, exactly. Just being paying attention to this stuff. And like you look at things like if it's 1975 and you're in the pizza business, let's be honest. A pizza is kind of like the other pizza. Sort of like a service call is kind of like another service call. We're all going to find a bad capacitor and change it if you know what you're doing at all. From the consumer standpoint, there isn't much to differentiate yourself. And all of a sudden, Domino's comes along and just says, well, what we'll do is we'll just deliver for free. Complete market differentiator. And it takes the owner, it took Tom Monahan, the owner of Domino's, to say, well, that's what we're going to do and that's how we're going to be different. And then all of a sudden, the marketing starts writing itself. He couldn't hire a marketing company to come up with that. He had to be the one who said, here's what we're willing to offer. We're going to give away free pizza if we're more than 30 minutes on the delivery. Yep. And once he did that, Pizza Hut threw up their hands and said, oh my God, you can't possibly do that. And he said, yeah, watch me. Absolutely. A guy that I follow, he's actually local here in Savannah. His name is Jesse Cole. I don't know if you ever heard of Jesse. He owns a couple of minor league baseball teams. No. They were trending number one on Twitter once the name of the baseball team here locally in Savannah was announced because it's the Savannah Bananas. It was really catchy and it trend number one. But basically, he put on a presentation about a week ago or maybe two weeks ago, and he talks about this all the time. But whatever the market does, pretty much do the exact opposite. 
if you think like that, if you're telling me I'm, I can't do it that way, then that's probably the direction that I can go. If all of our people are saying, you can't make money on Google, you can't make money on digital marketing, it's paper, you have to mail postcards, you have to do postcards, you have to do this, you have to do that. Okay, well, then I'm going towards Google. Uh, that's the direction I'm headed. Here's the key thing. If you think about that, you want to find the thing that scares you a little bit and scares the hell out of your competitors. Like back to Domino's, Pizza Hut said, you can't possibly deliver. And Tom Onahan said, yeah, it's scary, but we'll figure it out and we'll do it and we'll show you. We have people getting down on companies in our industry that say they can be on time for appointments. Well, they figured it out. Don't complain that they can't do it because you're too dumb to do it. You haven't put forth the effort to figure out how to do it. So now you're going to say it's not possible to be done. Come up with a new dispatching system or whatever, or charge enough so that it's worth it to you or whatever, but offer something they're not offering. And all of a sudden your marketing starts writing itself. And then we get these things where people get down into the weeds of like, should I use Google or Facebook or this thing? Or I tried Facebook, it didn't work. And I'm like, maybe it's your message. Yeah. What offer did you put out there? How did you target it? What did it do? It grew really detailed. So if you've mastered the marketing side of things, just we'll use some air quotes and we've mastered it. We're getting the phone to ring and we're kicking butt. We're rocking and rolling. The phone's ringing, our name's out there, but we're not making money. But I'm marking everything up 50%. So I don't understand why I'm not making money. Could you explain why whenever I tell somebody that I'm marking up something 50%, they tell me, well, you only have a profit margin of 33%. Yeah, here's what we get. And actually, this part actually had to come first because if you don't get this right, you can't afford to do the marketing. So let's just talk chicken or the egg here. This is definitely the egg. <laughs> when I work with clients, the very first thing we do is we do a deep dive into the finances right away because can, we can fix that by Monday. Then your business is now rocking and rolling on a financials basis that the arithmetic does not lie and we actually have things. So let me give you an example of that. And all those guys that you told, no, they're ripping you off. And then you come back on Monday and you say, uh, whoops, I was losing money. I love that it won't work in my area. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you. Do they have a special kind of arithmetic in Savannah that doesn't exist in Denver? I oh, yeah. You didn't know that? Detroit's completely different also. Ford somehow sells you a van for half the price too. And it just doesn't work that way, right? So we got to get these numbers right. And it's sometimes almost a happy delusion that you can somehow make monies at whatever rate they're charging. But here's how it works, okay? Your margin versus markup question. If we have $1,000 worth of cost, let's just say a piece of equipment, and let's say it's a one-man show and there are no other costs, which again is ridiculous, but $1,000 worth of cost to buy a condenser and a coil. And he says, I'm going to mark it up 50%. So he says he'll add 500 bucks and charge 1500 He did not make a 50% margin though, because $500 is a third of 1500 that's where it comes. It's not half. What's really weird is you get these small companies that are one, two trucks where maybe the owner is doing all the sales still. And he thinks he doesn't have the costs the big companies have, the one he wants to be someday. So he wants to be a big company someday. But he's saying to himself, well, right now I don't have the cost, so I don't have to charge that much. And my take on that is you need to charge and have the cost built into your financial system of the company you want to be, not the one you are. So if you plan to someday have a salesperson and you want to pay them a 7, 8, 10% commission, you should build that into your pricing model and pay yourself that money. That way, the first time you hire your first employee that's doing that job, you don't all of a sudden turn your whole business upside down. But so many people are just got their blinders on, but I can just sell it for this price because it's cheaper and I can somehow beat this bigger company. 
well, sure, you can beat them on price, but you'll never be them if you want to be that. The biggest thing that I see is whenever someone says, I don't have a truck as overhead because it's paid for, but they don't take into consideration the fact that eventually that truck's going to have to be replaced. Absolutely. Yeah. All those things. And then we get into the difference between overhead and direct cost and everybody's putting those in the wrong place. Your labor for install and service is a direct cost. It's not an overhead because if there's no work to do, you send everyone home. Now, your office people that you're coming in to sit by the phones that might not be ringing all day, that's overhead because you have to pay that bill anyway. So you have to split your labor into two different areas, right? Like I said, we spend a lot of time on this in the first week and everyone is shocked by getting it straight. I get a call like seven, eight days after I start working with a new client every single time that's like, holy crap, that was the game changer. (laughs) I get this every week. I just had an aha moment. Oh my God, I had everything screwed up. We have it all squared away now. And that was worth the entire everything that we've done so far. Anybody that follows you on Facebook or anywhere, they've heard you talk about different things. A lot of things that we've talked about here, a little bit hit or miss. One of the things that you mentioned a few weeks back was getting away from a phone system as far as kind of the thing of the past. And that goes back to us doing things in the 70s, whereas you didn't do things via email or instant messaging or text messaging. You did everything via phone. So moving into 2017, 2018, should we be getting away from answering service calls on the phone? Obviously, there's going to be those customers who are just always going to call you via phone. But the opportunity to schedule things on the internet whether it's on your website or it's an email. What's your thoughts on that? There's a lot of sophisticated systems out there that you can invest in that will allow you to do booking online. And I know that you and Brian talked about it in a podcast recently about trying to schedule online and that it's difficult because you have to put time slots out there. In the modern age, you have to have at least some ability for your customers to do their own thing and feel like they're making their own choices about scheduling. One of the biggest things after Brian and I spoke about that, another thought that I had was if that scheduling board is available online, the customer has the ability to actually look at it. Whenever you tell them, sorry, we're booked up until tomorrow or the next day or whatever the case may be, then if they did look online, there's confirmation that you are in fact booked up. You're not lying to them. Or if they have the ability to book online, if somebody has figured it out, I haven't found anybody yet that has the ability to allow a customer to book after they've put their address in, which would build in an algorithm to keep a guy from driving back and forth across town. That would be ideal. That's a separate question about dispatching for profit, which is a completely different conversation. But what I would do if I was a small company, one or a couple of trucks, and you're not, you're not all that sophisticated yet, is just pick out yourself two, three slots a day that you're going to allow people to book and you can fill the rest in manually. You could say, I'm going to have an 8 o'clock, a 12 o'clock, and a 3 o'clock call. You can pick one of those if you want to online because I know I can make those times. And then for the 10, 30, 11, between those, I'll just drop those in manually. If you get done with your 8 o'clock call at 9.30, I'll just drop you another call for that tech. And knowing that another one is booked at noon that was online booking, and we might just send a different person or whatever to that. We're going to have our dispatcher just manage it that way. But there's no reason why a company couldn't have at least some limited ability to do that, especially for things like maintenance calls and stuff like routine club membership PM stuff. And customers should be able to pick those out. Let them pick that out. Like a really good resource for that, if you don't have any other way to do it, is I use Schedule Once for my consulting business. It's cheap. It's like 30 50 bucks a month. It's cheap. 
And you just go in there and you say, look, these are the time slots I'm allowing people to pick from because I know I can make those. And if those are full, then it says we're booked. Does that integrate straight into your website? Yeah, you can drop it into a WordPress site. It's just got an embed code. You just drop it in. And when someone goes to that page, like in my case, it's tedgravelin.com forward slash booking. When you go to that page, it's not a page that is like indexed in my site necessarily on the drop down menus. But if I send someone there, like I drive them there from a button on something I'm doing online or something, if they land right there, it's on my website. And actually it is inside of schedule once, but it exists on my site, if that makes sense, it's embedded. So they just pick it out, they click, and when they hit submit, it sends me an email right away, like somebody just booked a call for two o'clock Tuesday or whatever. And then it also will, right after that, it will say, what do you want to have happen right after that? Do we take them to another website, another page, like a thank you page, thank you for booking your call. In my case, with a little video, Here's what to expect on the call. Here's what will happen. You can do that. It's really simple to set up and it's not even expensive. So you don't need to go invest in like $3,000 a month software that does this stuff that a lot of really large company would have if you wanted to do that on a limited basis. I'm imagining if you have a small company with like one, two, three trucks and you have like somebody in the office part-time or full-time, right after someone booked, they'd get an email and they could look at it and go, oh, okay. And go into your real dispatching system and just block it out now. Just transfer it over. It wouldn't take that much. You're only doing two or three calls like that a day. So big deal. But I think people should have some limited ability to do that in today's modern age. Because you do have customers who are like, I don't really want to call and talk to you. I don't want to be sold anything. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to pick a time. What would you say to the guys that have 50 or 60 trucks? They're playing a different game. I mean, they're playing a game where they're going to invest in something that actually does that all integrated in a completely different way. We're talking about General Motors here. We're talking about, you know, mom and pop. But if you got that many trucks, you've got a whole different set of parameters you're working under. I do find that there's some guys out there that have the 40 or 50 trucks or technicians and they're perceived as behind on the times just because they've been around for 150 years or seems like anyways. And so if those guys or girls are really ahead of the game and they are pushing the fact that you can book things online, then they seem more up to date than old time. Here's the other thing too. If you're a small company, it gives you a way to compete with those guys and kick their butt if they're not keeping up with the times, right? You could be a guy with three trucks and you could act like you got 30 trucks and no one would know. You don't have to lie about it, but you also don't have to tip your hand that says we're only got three trucks. And if some other company is still doing business the way their grandfather set it up in 1950, and just as they're large doesn't mean they're better or vice versa, right? Either way. I think one of the biggest things that happens is if you look at the marketplace, at least for me as a consultant, I'm looking at 90% of the market will never be above a million dollars in sales. Do you feel like that's a pretty accurate number? I'm guessing it. Who knows how many companies there really are? For example, in my market, at any given time, there's probably about 900 companies that we can identify. There may be another 200 companies we don't even know about, like a fireman who moonlights on the weekends and we don't even know about his company. Guys who do side work and who knows, right? How many there really is. But it's just my guess is that the average guy who owns an HVAC company or a small plumbing company or whatever is probably never going to get above one or two trucks and they're going to do four or five, six hundred thousand dollars and that's their living. It's okay. They're making a living, but they're never going to really grow a business above a million dollars. So from where I'm at is how do you make the leap and what's the difference? It comes down to the two things. It comes down to having a game plan that you actually know works and because it's worked for other people, not one you're making up on your own just on the fly. 
If you're struggling and you want to be that bigger company, why are you trying to use a plan that's not working, number one? And number two, circling back, why are you holding on to a mindset that's not working either also? It may have worked in the 70s whenever the owner of the company you worked for last first started out their company. And now that they have 15,000 customers, it's a little bit different for them. They can send out a postcard reminding them that they need maintenance done. So they get the phones to ring that way, whereas you don't have a customer base. And so you're not going to get 15,000 people just by word of mouth, not in a scalable amount of time, not in a decent amount of time. The other one that's really interesting is on a marketing side. The easiest way to do marketing is to reduce the need to have to do it, if that makes sense. It seems like an oxymoron, but it does make sense. Once you do it, you're just like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. So for example, I talk to people every single day that have zero customers under maintenance agreement, not a single one. And then they wonder why they have a slow period. Well, I need marketing for February because it's always slow in February. If you had 500 customers under market, under maintenance agreement, we wouldn't be having that conversation about why you really need it to work. And go back around to our football analogy. When you're running the Patriots playbook, you don't want every single play you run in the marketing sense to have to be a Hail Mary pass that has to work on the next player. You're screwed. You want to be able to say methodically plot on down the field and control the game. And you control the game by setting up, I've got business whenever I want it by having maintenance agreements and stuff in place in the right way with the right billing and things like that. So like, for example, I'm a very big proponent of monthly billing. Because it gives you revenue every single month. Your slowest month of the year, you got some money coming in, you can do something with it. Make the payroll, do some marketing, whatever, right? Upselling water heaters that are need to be replaced. Yes, setting that stuff up so that you've got customers every single month is a big deal. When you, once you have that in place, all of a sudden the other marketing you're doing doesn't become so critical that it has to work every single time and you can afford like a football team. Hey, I'm going to try this play. And if it doesn't work, we have another couple downs. We're good. Not five seconds left in the game. We need to score a touchdown or we're screwed. And for the plumbing and electrical companies that are listening also, you can do maintenance. There's a lot of plumbers that I talk to and they're like, yeah, you talk about having maintenance customers, but what am I going to do maintenance? Are you serious? There's flappers. You can flush water heaters. Flush the main drain once a year with just a jet system or something just to make sure it stays open. At that point, you're finding leaking water valves, shutoff valves. You're finding aged water heaters that are rusted and have like a slow leak inside the system. So that's all preventative maintenance. And that's when you have the potential to generate more revenue. I definitely wouldn't do a loss leader, but you're not going to generate a ton of money off of your maintenances. Uh, some companies do. Even if you want to start it out slow and if you're truly scared of it, price the maintenance so you're still making money, but go in there and do what you're doing. And I guarantee you, you'll find things. I'm willing to bet that you will make more money off of your maintenances once you've trained yourself on what to look for and how to upsell them than you would on just regular service calls. I'll tell you that the value of my company when I sold it was totally embedded in the maintenance agreements we had in place. Once you look at the fast growing companies and the ones that are profitable, not just fast growing, but profitable, you look at their maintenance customers and that's where their money, I mean, they have a lot of maintenance customers. Kind of a rule of thumb that I learned is for about every 500 maintenance customers you have, you probably need a technician. Kind of a good rule of thumb because you say, well, I've got 500 calls minimum to run this year. I might need a guy for that. And then plus whatever else it generates off of that. That leads us to a conversation also about things like the ethics of, are we selling things we don't need to sell and stuff? I'll just tell you right now, for me, it's totally integrity. You don't sell stuff people don't need to buy or they don't want to buy. Sometimes they don't need to buy, but they want to buy it. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. The customer made their choice, right? But we don't have to lie to them or do anything to take advantage of anyone in any way. There's plenty of work out there. But I think a lot of people shy away from even like, do I want to do a cheap tune-up postcard or something, right? Or a cheap tune-up offer because they have a perception that says, well, maybe I'll have to go and upsell people. And that can be taken to an extreme where some companies are saying every single call you have to sell something. I think that's ridiculous because you could do it every fifth call and every 15th call could be a new system. And that statistical number. This is for a whole nother subject, but when you're talking about the ethical side of upselling a system, if you have a 20-year-old system, I have a carrier air handler and condenser that's manufactured in 1983 and it's still operating are you doing something wrong by selling them a new XV20 variable speed train system? Not if they want it. And if they're just sick and tired of this thing making noise and being noisy outside their bedroom window and calling a guy every year to put new refrigerant because it leaks a little, and if they're sick and tired of all that, just because you can fix it doesn't mean you have to. Right. That's the point that I agree with. And basically, I think that there's the soft skills of being able to handle people, fix people versus fix the equipment. That's a really big deal. If you can't get that right, you're going to struggle for a really long time. <laughs> and it's not always just about being polite. You know, of course, that starts there. But it's also just about, I think an awful lot of mediocre technicians make a judgment call for themselves, what they would do if it were their system. And that's the only thing they offer. And that's tough because as a technician, we know that we can fix it. But the person that we're speaking to may be a situation that this is terrifying for them and they don't want to go through this ordeal again. And if they can replace the system, they're more than ecstatic about replacing that system so that they don't have to deal with this. Yeah, I know it's only nine years old, but what we don't know is that we're the seventh company they've had out there in nine years and has never worked right. And they're pissed off and sick of it. They just want a new one. That happens more often than we want to believe because it was a builder model piece of junk in the first place. So, and it was never installed well. So just because we can make the motor turn back on and make it blow cold doesn't mean it's a good idea. But at the same time, we don't have to lie to anybody either. Again, a mediocre technician makes his choice. Well, if it's nine years old, I wouldn't replace that if it were mine, so I'm not even going to offer it. That's ridiculous. You have to say, here's all your options. Here's option A, B, C, I, including doing nothing. I can walk away and just leave it alone. Here's all your options every single time. I believe in that very, very strongly, and I believe in training people to do that. And we go down to the sales training rabbit hole, and I don't really do sales training. I do a little bit, but there's some really good sales trainers out there that are really good at it, and I kind of let them do it. What I really focus on is more, I train owners to be owners. I don't train techs to be salespeople or any of that other stuff. That's what I do. All right, Ted. So if an owner or a service manager or install manager, whoever is listening to this and wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you, get more information about what you have to offer, how do they do that? Uh, I do have a website. It's pretty simple. It's tedgravlin.com. Amazingly. It's pretty generic. I don't do a lot of my marketing through my actual front page of my website. I'm coming at it from a different back end. I do a lot of webinars and that too. So most of my clients will actually come to me from the back end of a webinar or something else. But you can definitely get a hold of me through my website. And my email is also just tedgravlin at gmail.com. It's all one word, no dots or periods or anything in there. Okay. Does your business side have any social media stuff or you pretty much just go through your website? I go through my website. It's really weird is I have a Facebook page in that, but the only reason I have a Facebook page is so that I can run Facebook ads because <laughs> you have to link them to a page, but I don't sit there and play on my page. 
I'm really sophisticated with Facebook more than most to know the fact that page likes don't mean anything today. They meant something five years ago. I don't care if anybody likes my page. I don't post to it or do anything with it. I do have a Facebook group called HVAC Marketing that people search for and find that group. It's a small group. There's two, 300 people in it. It's not super active like some that have 30,000 people in it. But we do have discussions in there about how to market service companies and stuff. But that's sort of how I come at it is since I realize page likes aren't important, I'm not spending all day long on my business page updating it and sending posts and stuff because I don't care that anybody uses it. I know that my own marketing funnel is more of a, you'll see an ad. If the ad says, view my webinar, I'll talk about a certain subject. If you love what you see, then you'll call me on the phone. Very cool. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and helping to educate us a little bit, give a little bit more value for uh, all the business owners and managers and technicians who are kind of wondering why we do things the way we do it kind of opens their eyes a little bit. There one more thing that's pretty interesting is as I thought about this after I got in the consulting business, I started to realize that almost nobody that I know of, I can't think of anyone I know of that built a great business without a mentor. Very true. There's nobody who did that on their own. They almost always got somebody outside that says, no dummy, you do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> so you're volunteering to be somebody's mentor? That's what I do. I am the mentor. And what's really interesting is it, whether you pay the mentor or don't pay the mentor, the money becomes irrelevant. Once you've made that leap where you said, I've made a decision that I'm changing my business from now on, that's it. I'm all in. Put my chips on the table. I'm not doing it the old way anymore. That's the real decision point is when you get there. That's a very important turning point in your business. And part of it is when you finally pay a mentor, if you try to pay them like $500, you probably won't be effective. And I'll tell you why. It's probably because you haven't invested enough. You aren't invested internally enough to invest money enough yet. That perceived value. Exactly. Once you've got your own self to where like, look, I'm willing to spend whatever it takes to get success. That's a mental process. Once you've made that leap, the money in every case becomes irrelevant. You'll spend 10000 30000 50000 whatever it takes because you know you're going to make a million dollars because you've made the mental leap. A lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. And what's really weird is I won't chase people. If you're not ready to work with me or work with a mentor like me, then I'll just say it won't work anyway, so I'm not going to chase you. Maybe a few years down the road, things may change a little bit. When they get to that point, then they're ready. Then the teacher will appear, right? But that's what it comes down to is when you're ready for that. I mean, I'm not the only one. There's all kinds of things out there that you can go into like Nextstar and Airtime 500 and stuff. And they all have value at some level. It's just a matter of who do you like working with better. But I don't know of anybody who really built a really huge business without some kind of mentor somewhere. Whether it was one of those ones they paid money for or someone who like your uncle took them under your wing or something, whatever it is, somebody somewhere. It's very rare that someone does it on their own. And that's not just our business. That's any business. I read three, four books a week. Yeah, even like Steve Jobs and those guys, you're like, they're very rare when they come out that way. And a lot of things that you read in one book, I read a lot of books also, and you'll read a book and you say, yeah, I've read that somewhere else also. Because a lot of things that people are thinking and it's their thought process, it came from someone else also. Very rarely do we have like 100% original idea plans and everything. So we use a lot of mentors without even realizing we're using them. And the other thing that's weird is sometimes it's just because maybe humankind is connected to each other in some way and we all come up with the same ideas at the same place independently. It's almost like when I was working at the History Museum, we had the Wright brothers' home and the shop and everything where they built the airplane. What's interesting is there were about seven other groups working on airplanes at the same time. 
and they were all coming to the same conclusions. It's just that these guys were a little bit better at it quicker. And the world's apart, too. Exactly. There was a guy in Germany doing it. There was a guy, Samuel Langley, and it had, was really well funded by the government trying to do it. He wasn't very successful. But all these different people were trying it at the same time. So it's not like, oh, well, it's the same old thing. It's not necessarily. The other weird thing is just because you've heard it before, it's usually because that's the thing that works. Like we talk about marketing messaging. Well, it's because that message works. Why does someone keep using a tune-up postcard? Well, because it works, right? Why do people still meet with homeowners at the kitchen table? Because it works. What's really weird too is you sometimes want to get into a situation of, here's one I get a lot. Well, that won't work for me. A much better question to ask is, how do I make that work for me? I have something written on my chalkboard that says, I don't remember where I read it, but it says basically the exact same thing. If you ever say that won't work for me, what it you really mean is that it doesn't fit into my schedule. So if you wanted it to work for you, it could work for you. If it's worked for someone else and you wanted to make it work for you. I'll give you an exact example of that that I saw 10 years ago in the HEC world. I was at a convention. There was a guy who was describing how he had used a certain kind of flex duct. He was in Florida, lots of flex all in the attic. And he's talking about how he added like $2 million to his bottom line by changing out duct systems with this stuff. And people like in my market where I have all metal duct, it's all in the walls, furnaces are in the basement, are all going, well, this is because I can't use any of this stuff he's talking about because I don't have what he has. Well, I wasn't listening to it that way. I was listening to it and saying, well, wait a minute. Okay, so he's talking about the system doesn't work very well because the duct system is terrible. And he's going to go in and change out flex duct in the attic and go from six to eight inch and make it bigger and make it blow better and all these really cool things. But I could do that. I just have to do it with metal duct. Of course, I can't go in the walls and change it, but I could make better plenum transitions in a basement. I could do all kinds of really cool stuff. But what I was really listening for is how is he selling it? Oh, I see. He's using a magnahelic gauge, not a digital one, the analog kind. And he hooks it on the duct and he lets the customer watch it peg over to the right. Exactly. That effect. Doesn't take a rocket scientist for the customer to go, well, that don't look good. And he says, right. Now it's going to cost $5,000 and I'll fix your duct system. And they say, okay, geez. And it doesn't matter that he's using a flex duct. It doesn't matter what he's using at that point. It became, how do I use his technique of going to market with that? It's not, oh, that won't work for me. It's how do I make that work for me? What spin do I put on it to make it work in my In my market, I had this different situation. Okay, that's cool. I have clients who work in like Minnesota or Seattle where they have virtually no air conditioning season. All the stuff you're talking about doesn't work. It's like, do it with furnaces. It's like, what difference does it make? And it's crazy because now we, with the internet, I can talk to a lot more people worldwide and you get that same thing. Like, wow, I didn't know that that could work that way. Yeah. And then you take it to your market and say, well, let me put my little twist on it. Right. And the really cool thing is if you're doing that in a market where all your competitors think it's impossible, it's actually easier. All right, cool. Well, I appreciate it. You're spending some time with me and filling me up with some more knowledge. <laughs> and I got to commend you also because I've been listening to your podcast and stuff. And clearly you have a, a decently running business that's doing really well. And you've definitely got a forward thinking attitude towards moving things in the industry forward for yourself and the industry. So cool. I appreciate it. Really great to talk to somebody who's kind of on the forefront of that because it's always my thing. If I used to send a lot of direct mail in the 90s, but I'm not doing that now. I'm doing Facebook. It's way easier. It's cheaper, <laughs> way cheaper. Yeah, my goal here with the podcast, I really just want to educate anybody that wants to learn. That's the thing about it. I want to get everybody up to date on things. I mean, it's really weird. I think of a Facebook ad the way I think of a direct mail ad. 
because in both cases, I'm sending it to somebody who didn't necessarily look for it today. But the cool thing with Facebook is I only get charged when they effectively open the envelope. And it's similar with YouTube videos. So if they don't watch it more than 30 seconds, then you don't get charged for it. Google is sort of like the old yellow pages and Facebook's like direct mail. And so when you're looking at Facebook, I'm saying we used to send five, 10,000 mail pieces a week back in the 90s. We were doing it all the time. The problem is you spend 5,000 mail pieces. It's like $2,500 in postage just to send it so that you get 100 opens, right? Well, I can do the same thing with Facebook today for 50 bucks. Very true. That's what it'll cost for them to click on it. And a click is sort of like opening an envelope. And what's really cool is I get feedback. I'll know in 48 hours whether it's working. I can just change it. I love the platform, but the bad news is people are using it so wrong. They're doing it so wrong. Well, good. You have ability to teach people that. I do. I spend a lot of time on Facebook marketing because people are using it so wrongly. For example, they are not on there shopping for anything. So you cannot say, buy my stuff. They're going to ignore you. 100%. I see that all the time. That's the reason why I chuckle because that's the exact same thing that I think whenever somebody's pushing their stuff like buy this, buy that. I'm here to see pictures. Yeah, you're going to be really sneaky with it. Like You could, for example, here's a good one. I'll give away one for free. If you had a really cool video, I've had success with this, people doing it, a really cool video of something like the smoke getting sucked out of a duct system in like eight seconds because the filter is really good. All you do is put the video up and let people look at this really cool thing. And if you targeted that to people whose kids have allergies, they're going to look at that and say, damn, I want a filter like that. And you're not trying to say buy my stuff. There's like... Tell me more about that. And like, and if, and if you run your platform right and go right to a landing page that talks about how filter systems work and everything, you could book a call online with a two or three step process right there at three o'clock in the morning when they have insomnia and you're not even open for business. Making money when you're asleep. That's the goal. Exactly. And if you build that out right, you're building a curiosity hook where someone says, I want to click on that just because it's cool. They'll buy your stuff three steps down the line, but you don't start off with, hey, you need to buy this filter. It doesn't work that way on Facebook. Now, on Google, they go there looking for, they type in air filters because I have a problem. Yeah, they're searching to buy. They are searching to buy something. So that's different. You cannot run your, take your successful Google campaign and just throw it on Facebook and make it work. No, that Facebook doesn't like it. So, And there's all kinds of things. They will shut your ad account down for certain things too. And I pay attention to that a lot in the internet marketing world that I live in. Because by the way, I have a mentor also that works in the internet marketing world and I pay a lot of money for it worth every penny. There are people who are, they get their account shut down with no notice and you can't get it back. I'm talking about the ability to place ads. Oh yeah. Getting put an ad. What do they call that? Sometimes they'll do it in probation first. Not the way that I've been hearing it for the last couple of years. It's, they just have an algorithm in there that says, bang, you're done. I'll give you an example of the kind of ads that would be bad. Not that they're in our industry, but people who sell like weight loss or something. If you're running ads that make people feel really bad about themselves, Facebook doesn't like it. You are running an ad for, let's say you're a personal trainer and you run this ad, I can make you lose 50 pounds in 60 days or something, right? But if you start an ad out with text that says something like, are you so fat you can't tie your shoes, <laughs> right? Like they're going to say, you're making people feel really bad about themselves. And they're going to say, bang, you are no longer an advertiser ever again. You're done. Ooh, like, you're done. That's bad. Yeah, you're completely done. So you might have to run it a little more sideways. In that case, you would run something like this person lost this much weight in this much time. And it's almost like results, not typical, right? But you're just showing what happened for someone else and not really calling anyone out. And you have to come at it a little bit differently where you can't just say, hey, you, yeah, the fat guy over there, you can't do that. right? 
So you got to beware on there. And there could be things in our industry, like you can't probably say you're going to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. That would be a bad thing. I think they would shut your ad account down. Like within about two days, you'd be done. You'd never run another ad again. That would be very, very bad. I do spend probably a lot of my marketing talking about the nuts and bolts of that. But mostly what I'm talking about is the conceptual things because Facebook could go the way of MySpace where we don't use it anymore five years from now. And the new thing, whatever it is, you want to be able to take the concepts that we know how to use and just apply it to that. Such as Twitter. Right. So like once you know how to write good ad copy and come up with good offers and know how to track your results and stuff like that, those are skills you keep forever. The only reason I know how to use Facebook is because I knew how to do direct mail. As long as you're willing to transition into the what's coming up. I ignored the skills about how to do carrier routes and stuff from direct mail that I used to know how to do. And now I have to pay attention to how to do Facebook targeting. But the concept of why it works is still because it's a good offer with the right ad copy that's compelling and not talking about me. It's talking about the customer. Yes, absolutely. We could have a whole conversation about ad copy someday. Maybe a whole other podcast, right? <laughs> there you go. That's a really big deal for me. So Cool. Well, I'll probably have you back home for that then because I love listening to that. I subscribe to Donald Miller. I was having a brain fart, building a story brand, basically branding your company, making sure it's a clear and concise message. Have you listened to Gary Vaynerchuk? Oh, yes, yes. I listened to Gary Vaynerchuk. I had to slow down on my listening to him because he puts out so much content that it was taking up all my time. <laughs> I was at an event where he was the keynote speaker a couple of years ago, an internet marketing event. He was amazing. Because the first thing out of his mouth, he goes, marketers ruin everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a big thing. He says if they don't ruin it, then they're not doing a good job. Email used to be great. We used to have 85% open rates. And then marketers got a hold of it. And now no one opens their email anymore. Marketers ruin everything. <laughs> and the same goes with text messaging now. I always get that whole, I get a kind of a parody of a Prince song in my head. Tonight, we're going to market like it's 1999. <laughs> and we have so many businesses still doing that. They're still pretending that, well, it used to work. Like, well, people ain't doing that anymore. Three-hour sales calls at the kitchen table, that used to work. People ain't doing that anymore. Oh, yeah. If you could do that now, I wouldn't buy, even if it was the best thing that you, on the market to have. I would be so annoyed. Think about those sales processes. A lot of them were built off of the piggybacking off of the sales techniques that were from like encyclopedia salesmen door-to-door -door in the 50s, right? It's not much different from that. The system that I actually use today is way easier than that for sales. It's called IRUS and it's intention, showing up with your intention. What do I intend to have? I intend to serve my customer. Rapport. If I don't have rapport, I can't do anything else. It might take me an hour talking about the dude's stuffed fish on the wall or whatever it takes to get rapport with the guy, right? And then I uncover his problem, whatever that is. And it's not always uncover the physical broken air conditioner. It's what's his real problem. Oh, the bedroom doesn't cool. Yeah. Comfort or whatever. And then what's your real problem? Your real problem is the last guy screwed you and made you take off three days of work. He never showed up. Let's uncover the problem, right? Then we size up whether we can solve that or not. And then we sell a solution. And most of the time, one of the things I learned is whatever I really, really, really want to tell the customer, I can't say it. I make them say it. Yeah. Once they say it, they're bought in. If you're like our proverbial 20-year-old piece of crap air conditioner, right? If I say you need a new air conditioner, I'm just trying to sell them one. But if they say, man, I think I need to buy an air conditioner, now it's true. Yep. And I can ask them a few questions and probably get them to say that if it's true for them. 
And then I'm not arguing with him and we're not having to do 47 ways to do that. I want to think about it close or something. <laughs> They're done. They're like, oh, I'm just going to pick one out now. I know I need to buy one. What, what kind you got? It's like, it's easy. I'll put it in tomorrow. It's fine. You know, we have the guys over here in about an hour, rip this one out and start working on it. It's fine. So it's super, super simple things like that, but maybe a whole nother conversation. Oh yeah. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Ted. You have a wonderful day and hopefully you get to feeling better too. I'm pretty good. I just have a little bit of a, my throat tickles once in a while. So. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. All right, cool. Wow. Did you catch all of that? If not, don't worry about it. The show notes will be posted to the Facebook group. Wait a minute. You're not a member of the Facebook group. Stop what you're doing. Go to Facebook, click service business mastery podcast in the search bar, go to the group section, click join. It's going to ask you two simple questions and then you just answer them as honest as you want to. And somebody will add you to the group. The notes from this show will be there. They'll also be on LinkedIn if you prefer LinkedIn over Facebook. If you have any questions about any of it, email me, tersh at bluecollarroots.com. If you haven't subscribed, please go over to wherever you're listening to this podcast through your podcast catchers. Click subscribe. Leave us a rating, five-star preferably. The ratings and reviews, they really help us out on iTunes and Google's ranking algorithm. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Thanks again for supporting the Blue Collar Roots Network. If you haven't listened to Bill Spohn's HVAC Building Science, check it out. Bill is full of knowledge. He's a great learning resource. Check out Brent and Billy. They're the tool pros. If you're not following them on Instagram, you got to follow them. They are putting out all kinds of stuff on Instagram, different cool tools and tricks. Make sure you're listening to the HVAC Shop Talk, Zach Ciotta and Ralph Wolf. Congratulate Ralph on his new job. It's a natural fit for him, doing outside sales at Supply House. Going from a business owner to outside sales. It's a nice little transition, little retirement job. But most importantly, I thank you, the listeners. If you weren't there listening, then I wouldn't be here recording. So I appreciate you and... I thank you for everything that y'all do to, to support us in the podcast and Brian or Brian does a lot of work behind the scenes, editing and making sure that we don't sound like complete buffoons <laughs> here on the podcast. Anyways, next week we have CRMs, CSMs, customer service management, customer relations management software. We'll be interviewing a guy from Service Titan. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Service Titan. But after researching Service Titan and hearing everything that they have going on, they seem like a really good fit for a lot of service-based companies. So throughout the next week, maybe do a little bit of research for yourself so you're kind of prepared for the conversation to come. So thank you and have a wonderful week. <laughs>